Hello and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Sports. My name is Michael Raziel and my guest today is Peter Yurick. He's an author, he is a speaker, he is a coach, he is a teacher, he is an all-around incredible dude and I am very, very grateful that I had him on the show. He actually coached at my rival high school. So I went to North Hunterdon, he coached at Hunterdon Central for a little while while I actually would think was in college or in high school, which is pretty cool. So absolutely fun having him on to talk about his books to talk about his speaking career what he's doing and how try it how he's trying to help young people which i really really appreciate so make sure you enjoy this episode with peter yurik Today, I'm for the love of sports. I have Peter Yurick, author, speaker, coach. He's a soccer coach at Virginia Episcopal School, and he's also a Spanish teacher. So thank you for being a teacher, uh, especially with everything that's going on now. I think all teachers are starting to get the quite not quite the appreciation they deserve, but a little bit more. But Peter, thank you so much for hanging out with me today. Not a problem. Happy to be here. Fantastic. So Peter, the first question I have for everybody on for the love of sports is, why do you love sports so much? Uh, basically, I mean, for me, uh, I started out playing at a very young age, uh, about six or seven, uh, soccer was my main sport. Uh, and for the true answer of right now, why I love sports so much is because of the fact that sports are a great metaphor for life. I think that's why we love sports as much as we do because of the fact that, Within a, you know, in the example of soccer, 90 minutes or, you know, basketball or whatever your time limit is, you have all of the uh, range of emotions that you have throughout the uh, life of a person happen in that small period of time. And, you know, since we're no longer in a life and death struggle for survival, it's probably the best metaphor for what it is to like to be alive, to, you know, succeed, fail, um, and test yourself to your limits as much as you possibly can without worrying about whether you're going to survive or not. (laughs) It's so true, man. I mean, the the range of emotions, you, uh, you know, a person will go through either playing the game, coaching the game, or just as a fan watching the game. You know, if I watch a Mets game, I go from completely elated to depressed and probably two pitches just because that's what the Mets do to me. And it's just, it's one of those things where, you know, and then there's feelings that I've never felt before. And I don't know if I ever will again, or at least in that context where I was at the 2015 world series, at the Mets um, in City Field, the one that the Mets lost, they lost four to one in the series, but I was at the game that they won. And I've never felt that feeling before in the stadium. You know, it's completely packed, standing room only tickets, people are sneaking in, all that stuff. And there's that energy and it's a feeling that, I mean, I don't know, I've never felt it. I don't know what it is. And it's just incredible. Yeah, I had the same t- type of uh, experience uh, this past April in uh, 2019. Um, my son and I went to England and we went to two soccer games while we were over there. We went and saw um, Everton play against Manchester United, which I you know, w- was doing for my son because he's an Everton fan. But then the other game that we went to, we went to Peterborough United versus Sunderland. And you know, I'm a Peterborough United fan. And we were down uh, 1-0 late in the game and one of our players put a goal in and I almost passed out 
like from the excitement and I've never had that feeling before. I don't know that I ever will again. The only thing that saved me was I recognized about halfway. I'm like, Oh, I'm going to pass out here. And my, at the time, 13 year old son would have been having to deal with that situation in the middle of England without, you know, any Mm -hmm. uh, parental help or anything. So I was like, I'm going to calm down (laughs) a little bit. Oh my goodness. But yeah, I mean, there's nothing like it. I mean, it's always interesting to meet people that watch reality TV shows. I mean, just put on a playoff hockey game, man. See what that's like. You were, you were on the edge of your seat from, you know, the second period on every second and third period, especially in a close game in any sport. It's just incredible. So I never understood why reality TV needs to exist if we have sports practically every day. But you're completely right. It is an absolute metaphor for life. My my thing about reality TV is, in general, you know, I call it the honey boo boo effect. I think it's the reverse of the Bannister effect. My I obviously, you know, Roger Bannister, the first four minute mile. Um, you know, once he does that, he breaks the glass ceiling for mm-hmm. what's possible within six weeks you know however many uh, other people do it and everything like that and what Bannister did was he showed us what was possible and then the opposite happens I call it the honey boo-boo effect which is people in order to make themselves feel good want to see somebody who's lower on the totem pole than they are and so therefore that's where reality tv comes in I think a lot of the time is, you know, people don't want to see people that are better than them. They want to see somebody worse. So they can feel a little bit of that self-esteem type of thing. It's an interesting interesting, uh, caveat there. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And I guess I wasn't even looking at it from that perspective. I was just looking at it from the perspective, as you said, of life, right? Like we're watching reality TV because it's real. And for anyone out there listening, I'm using very heavy air quotes and it's, we all know it's not real. We all know it's scripted in some way, shape or form. I was woken up on the beach one time by a reality TV producer telling the reality TV stars what they were supposed to say in the next shot. So we all kind of know it's fake, but it's just always interesting to me, you know, again, just kind of going back to that metaphor of life is, is how that connects. And I guess, you know, for you personally, when did you make that, I guess for lack of a better term, you know, connection with understanding sports and life and and the correlations and the the comparisons between the two of them. Um I think I really really got deep into that thought process probably about, you know, 8 to 10 years ago. Uh you know, I think I always had an inkling that uh that it existed, mm-hmm. but for the most part that's been the time where I started to really get into it. Uh you know, obviously you and I have some mutual connections um and I was coaching a lot of high school boys mainly um, in soccer. And this one particular summer I had a, uh, a team that I was working with and every single practice, it seemed like, you know, even though we were working with soccer skills and everything like that, something would come up where it was, you know, Hey, this is a relevant mm-hmm. thing that's going to keep on peaking up in your lives. So just keep a, a, you know, keep an eye out for that. And what I was doing is because it was a summer team and not everybody was making it to every practice, I was sending out an email as kind of a recap for, you know, what was going on that particular practice and what we talked about, not just the soccer skills, but also the life skills. And about, you know, a month into the season, I was like, I have a lot more to say here. And Mm -hmm. also um, there are, you know, bigger concepts that I could be dealing with. So I just kept on writing and that's what turned into my first book. Actually, I didn't write that first book to publish it, to put it out there as like, you know, some uh, grandiose idea of, of mine out into the world. It was 
specifically written for the guys on that team as kind of like a collection mm-hmm. of this is what we talked about throughout the season and, and a little bit more. And, uh, but when I was writing it, my wife was like, well, why not just publish it? And you never see, you, you never know mm-hmm. what you're going to have happen. So, you know, I put that book out there and, you know, it did relatively well for, you know, not having any expectations whatsoever. Mm-hmm. It did all right. Hey, zero expectations. <laughs> you get a one. I mean, that's better than nothing. And don't worry, the uh, all both your books, if I'm not mistaken, you have two will both be in the show notes for people to check out um, mm-hmm. later if they want to go grab those. Because again, I, I, I'm assuming, I, I have a feeling that through this conversation, people are going to understand a little bit more around why you wrote those books and how you were capable of contributing to many people's lives along the way, which I think is really, really important. And so you've played soccer I, I know you started you played a little in you know obviously high school I'm swimming some travel you also played in college what is it about soccer and if I'm not mistaken called the most beautiful game what is it about soccer that connects so well with you to the point where you're at a game down one nothing you're about to pass out when your team scores um well I mean th- that particular instance is is a culmination of of, you know, a lot of emotions of, you know, being there with my son and everything like that. But in general, um, I think the reason why soccer is such a beloved sport uh, all around the world is because of the fact that it is probably, in my opinion, the uh, the greatest metaphor for life. And the reason why a, a, a sport like football all right. Why football has taken off in this country over the past century and, and, you know, maintained itself as our number one sport is because of the fact that football, the American game, has a lot of things that overlap with the American psyche. OK, it's very American to think, OK, if I'm moving forward, I'm being successful. If I'm moving backward, I'm not being successful. And that whole entire idea of manifest destiny, if you want to go back historically and everything like that, thinking about that idea of progress is very American. So that's why that sport caught on in the American psyche, plus Mm -hmm. the idea of exceptionalism, where it's, you know, the quarterback is one of the most important uh, role players. And, you know, you have these people who are specific roles that if it's not for them, the team doesn't do well, mm-hmm. as opposed to soccer, where it's a little bit more of everybody's important. You know, one of the things that I have a tendency to talk about with, uh, you know, my football player students who are like, well, I just don't understand soccer. Well, you know, soccer in football are actually the same exact sport. If you know anything about football, you know a bunch about soccer already um, because there's the same number of players. It's actually, if you look at it genealogically, um, soccer is the grandfather of football because of the fact that rugby's in the middle and Mm -hmm. uh, American football is down there. But the whole entire reason why soccer so beloved around the world is because it deals with life the way that life actually works is it always in your best interest to go forward no actually it's not always best in your best interest to go forward at all costs sometimes you've got to step back reflect go back in order to create space in order for you to move forward to get towards your goals um i i won't you know i can't actually show you right now because I don't have a a Mm. drawing on me. But the thing I've been working on most recently is um, the soccer field. If you were to diagram out a soccer field and the boundaries, I've been looking at the boundaries a lot recently. And one of the things that I started thinking about is, well, how often do you use the different boundaries within a soccer field? Like, you know, the center circle, 
How often do you use it? Well, you're guaranteed to use it at least twice per game. Well, what does that correlate to in your life? And the boundaries on the outside, what does that correlate to? And I started thinking about things like, you know, hydration, things like, uh, you know, your diet, breathing exercise and stuff like that. And the defensive third versus the offensive third and what it, what it's like to, you know, have a, have somebody score against you in a game versus in real life. How does somebody scoring against you? What does that correlate to in, um, in the real world? And ultimately I'm finding more and more that like, Oh, this, this, uh, you know, relationship between soccer and life is way bigger than I ever, ever thought it was. And I think that that's why the sport is so, you know, universally beloved is because of the fact that in the game, there is so much about what it's like to be alive. The unrealistic uh, situation of, you know, there's very few professions in this world where being 300 pounds and six foot seven is really helpful and mm-hmm. being full of muscle. But, you know, soccer it has a tendency to lend itself more towards general fitness and all of these other things. So, you know, that's where I I see a lot of the correlations and, you know, the overlaps and mm-hmm. why, why I think soccer is what it is. And I think that's really interesting. I mean, the general fitness aspect of it, I totally agree with you. Like the NBA, um, the NFL, it's just ridiculous. Like these guys are one in a million, essentially they are super hyper specific, but as you said, with soccer, it's just like, I mean, obviously you probably better to be a little taller or a little stronger, or a little faster, but you don't have to be superhuman at all of these things to be the best. I mean, you know, look at Messi. He's not the tallest guy in the world, right? I mean, Cristiano Ronaldo, I think, is the most attractive man on planet Earth voted by (laughs) everyone else on the internet. But it's just one of those things where you don't have to be just this unbelievable, just specimen of a human being in soccer. I think that's, that makes sense. That makes sense to me. But kind of thinking about it the way you were, you know, the, the one of the first analogies you made, which I love, it's good to go back. That way you can create space. You can reflect. You can understand, you know, kick it back. Like, let's let's calm down. Let's let's take a second. Let's see what we have and let's try and regroup and move forward. And as you said, with football, if you're not moving forward, you know, you're either staying in the same place, which is bad, or you're moving backwards, which is worse. Right. And then you lose it down. Right. Because of how the system works and how like how how do these ideas come to you like what do you are you sitting down and just kind of like hey i'm gonna reflect for an hour hey i'm just gonna think for an hour or is this just do these just kind of as you're on the field as you're just talking some of these things just kind of pop in your head and then you start to dive deeper because these are some really interesting concepts that i don't think everybody just naturally makes i believe you and understand like some of it might be in the subconscious but you know saying it out loud to people i think actually makes even more of it reinforced yeah um you know a lot of it stems from the fact that uh, it's an overlap or a synthesis of the things that I read, the things that I listen to, you know, uh, the intake that I have. I have a tendency to study a lot of uh, psychology, um, you know, a little bit of neuroscience, a little bit of leadership and, you know, all of those things. When you start seeing ideas, you see the patterns that uh, they're underlying here. You know, obviously you've got taking a, 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 a different route, you know, you got the science fiction world of star Wars and everything like that. And the hero of a thousand faces, we aren't telling any new stories. Mm-hmm. It's all of them have this underlying current that there's not a whole lot new under the sun. It's just how, how these things overlap and how they coalesce in order to, you know, make us live a better life at this moment that we are living in, you know, the, the story of uh, you know Ulysses or whoever mm-hmm. is the same story as 
Luke Skywalker is the same story as Messi. It's the same story as anybody. And, you know, just seeing that. And for me, I've been very fortunate that, you know, (laughs) I've had a science class or an experiment going on at, at a, uh, at a daily on a daily basis with the players that I deal with and everything like that. And, you know, our common friend, um, Jeremy is a perfect example. All right. Now, um, I don't know if I'm going to, uh, out anything that he didn't already know, but you know, he was a junior going into his senior year and we were thinking about cutting him because he had played on JV the year before. And, you know, he really hadn't impressed his left foot wasn't very good. And so we uh, were thinking about cutting him. And at the beginning of the season, we did all these um, these uh, tests. We mm-hmm. did the two-mile test. We did the what we would call the Man-U test. And the Man-U test was a 100-yard sprint followed by a 100-yard jog back. And the requirement was 20. You had to do 20 in order to be able to start for varsity. Well, Jeremy runs the first, second, makes it to 20. He ran 32 which is more than anybody had ever read. Uh, you know, most guys gave up as soon as they got to the 20, cause that's all they needed to do. Mm-hmm. They did the bare minimum. And when he did the 32, we're like, we can't cut this kid. Mm-hmm. And then he ended up like he, he had the assist for the, uh, for the game winning goal to win us a, a County championship and then got us into the state final with an assist. And it's like, you look at all of these things happening over and over again. And it's like, you know, I, I, I would be stupid not to see all of these life lessons about, you know, what's going on in the bigger picture of thing. When I, on a daily basis, get to deal with young people who are mm-hmm. living this stuff out. That is that's very impressive. And so I personally did not know that story. I hope Jeremy knows that story because I'm going to ask him about it. If well, he doesn't the, already. The, the so. thing that he does know is he knows he made the team. I yes. don't know if he knows that we were thinking about cutting him. Although well, I think the writing might have been on the wall because he did place, you know, JV mm-hmm, as a junior. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's very, it's, it's always a, a pretty large tell. And no, Jeremy's a very, very good friend of mine. He's going to be in my wedding, um, you know, in a couple months as if all goes well um, towards, Great towards, yeah, he's incredible. I love him a lot. He's a very good friend of mine, but it's just, you know, it's a really good point. As you said, you know, most people gave up at 20 and he specifically continued well past it. I mean, 25 probably would have been a good look too, but no, I mean, 32, you know, 50 plus percent above 60%, whatever that number is, quick math. Obviously, it shows tenacity. It shows something. And as you said, just that connection to life is very important. The people that are willing to go the extra mile and the extra literal mile after that, I think are those are the kind of people you at least want to surround yourself with. And you and the coaching staff made, it seems like the correct decision because it allowed him then to be in the the right place at the right time in multiple situations to push you guys even further, which I think is great. And you know what it, a year makes a difference people change people could do better and again just going back to that connection at life and no 100 and central uh, i know you coached there for a little while it was literally a uh, couple miles down the school i went to north 100 and so i know some years we beat you guys most of the year most of the years you guys beat us but uh you know it was still nice and it was good and you know some other uh good friends of ours you know if mike's out there listening i hope he's enjoying this conversation and i hope he's texting jeremy right now maybe poking a little bit of fun because that's just the kind of guy he is but while you're at uh, 100 and central i know you were telling me before uh before we hopped on you were also you also created a soccer documentary while you were there so i mean i'm not like the biggest documentary buff but we have to talk about it as i said before everybody 
except you apparently are watching the last dance right now on planet earth because no sports are going on but um okay i'll let you okay tell me no i i i watched the first episode okay but i watched it with my wife and we both you know uh, got the chance to watch it and now we're gonna watch the rest okay. of them we're just watching them together it's we're just not watching them live when they're coming on on sunday night i get we're, that we've got the espn app so we can you know watch it, it when we Forgive have a chance yeah, forgiven no, i'll give you no. that now but um, uh, you know but, i i grew up during the time yeah. where i mean i'm actually a larry bird fan but you know when when michael was uh was coming into his own that was the prime time when i was actually watching the nba mm-hmm. so it's uh it, it it's totally relevant to me it's fun to watch mm-hmm. my childhood come up on the tv screen <laughs> right it, it, it's it's very interesting and i mean i i remember my parents sat me down uh in 1998 uh, if I'm not mistaken, against the Utah Jazz in that last one. And I was seven. I was six at the time. They're like, hey, yeah, you have to watch this. I was like, okay, Michael Jordan's on. They're like, no, no, no. Just just sit down, watch this last game. They end up winning. They win the finals, whatever. I'm Again, I don't care, but I have those memories still. And it's much more important now kind of seeing everything that's going on. It's really cool. And that's kind of why I love documentaries. It allows us to look back on something. And, you know, we all remember what happened, but we don't know all the details. So it's really interesting to see that. And so with the documentary that you created, what what was, I guess, the what was the reason why you wanted to do something like that? And I guess, you know, what came out of it for you personally, but then for the audience and anybody paying attention? Um, You know, the documentary was uh, an idea that I had. When I was uh, driving into work each and every day, I would listen to uh, sports talk radio, ESPN radio coming out of Philly and listening to guys like um, Mike Missanelli and a few of the other, uh, you know, talk radio guys. Mm -hmm. And they're, you know, talking NFL, they're talking NBA, they're talking MLB, but they're not really talking about soccer ever. So, you know. I started thinking to myself, you know, and I apologize. I don't mean to cut you off. When did Philly, when did they get their MLS team? And that's, that's one of the other reasons is because of the fact, no, that's fine. Is the, uh, the Philly team was brand new when I uh, actually started making the uh, documentary. It was, I I believe they came into the league in 2010. So um, my documentary I, I made in 2011. So, all of that stuff, uh, you know, just interested me. Um, I'm not hearing uh, about soccer on the radio. So, you know, where does soccer stand was my, you know, cause I had been a soccer guy, uh, my entire life. And, you know, so I wanted to figure that out. So I decided to, um, interview three groups of people. I started off with the, um, sports talk radio hosts. I interviewed four of them, uh, and, you know, just asked them questions about, what they thought about soccer. And then also I quizzed them a little bit on their soccer knowledge. And that was, that was like a a fun little exercise, you know, in general, the opinion was soccer's nothing. It's never going to amount to anything. And you know, it is what it is. The second group was international players who were over here in the United States playing uh, soccer professionally. So, you know, uh, Joel Limpere who played for the New York Red Bulls, um, Fareed Mondragon, who played for Philadelphia Union at the time, and then two other guys who played for uh, lower league teams. And what was their opinion of they've played elsewhere? What's it like here? What is the actual true level? And got some good feedback on, you know, hey, the, the play is actually not that bad. Uh oh, we just uh, blanked out there for a second. So we're back. I think we're okay. good, right? 
Yep. All right, I, cool, I don't cool. know if that was on my side or your side, but anyway, um, chalk it up to being on my side. Um, okay. But yeah, if you could just start over um, with, you know, you just said those two players names and, and pretty much just roll right into it from there. Okay. So for Reed Mondragon and uh, Joel Impair, and then, um, you know, the t- other two, uh, Paul Shaw uh, was the other one. And I don't even remember the fourth guy. So I don't remember his name off the top of my head, but anyway, we, uh, I interviewed those guys to get the uh, input on what soccer is like compared to other places. You know, mm-hmm. they've played elsewhere. They came over here. What do you think of the uh, game over here? And the general consensus by them was the the level's pretty good, you know, and some of the crowds are, are really nice. Uh, and then the last guy that I interviewed was um, Dan Cordemanche, who is the executive uh, vice president of MLS. And, you know, so what's your opinion about where soccer is and where is it going and everything like that? And again, you know, he's an insider for uh, MLS. And so he has his own opinions about where soccer is. And the thing that I got more than anything out of that uh, experience was that the person whose opinion mattered most was actually me because I'm a father of a young son and daughter who, you know, my son knows who Thierry Henry is at the time was a big player and everything Mm -hmm. like that. I was taking my son to games and I was what I was, I started referring to as a first generation soccer. My dad didn't play soccer, uh, but I did. And so then the second generation is my son. And that's why, you know, things like the NFL and the MLB are such a big deal is because I've got, you know, my brother-in-law is a huge Yankees fan. He's a Yankees fan. You know why? Because his father was a Mm -hmm. Yankees fan. And why is, why are his kids Yankees fans? Because their dad was a Yankees fan. And so that whole entire thing of that generational, um, tidal wave, if you will, will eventually take over in the U.S., but it's just going to take time. People think that, you know, all of a sudden soccer is going to become, you know, the the huge uh, sport that it is every place else. It takes generations for that to happen. I graduated from high school in 1994. That was the year that the World Cup was here, and we didn't even have a, a true, we have the USL, which existed and I'll, you know, talk about that more later if you want to, but the MLS um, ha- didn't exist until 1996. So, you know, true level of, you know, highest level professional soccer really wasn't around. And now we've got a league in, in MLS that, you know, has 20, I think they're up to 24 teams and it's only getting larger. So, you know, and the number of uh, lower league teams keeps on increasing. So, yeah. And I think it's really important, as you said, you know, it's, it's the generational effect. Baseball has been around since 18, blah, 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 or whatever. And that's, you know, it's, it's very impressive. You know, that's fan because my mom's a Mets fan because her mom's a Mets fan. That's just kind of how it worked. And so I fell in love with the game and I continue to watch and, and you make a really good point. Was that something that you, for lack of a better term, figured out during the filming process um, or the editing process? Or was that something that you kind of knew and you just wanted to see if other people had and saw that same narrative? Um, it wasn't a, it wasn't a foregone conclusion before um, the ending of the process. Like I went in, looking for answers that, you know, possibly by interviewing all these different people that I was going to get some kind of perspective that they had that I was going to receive. But um, more than anything, I remember, you know, filming the last, uh, the last piece of the, uh, of the documentary was me kind of summing up 
And that's exactly what I got to. And I kind of got to it at that moment of, you know, maybe I am the most important person in this equation. Now, obviously not me as, yes. as the only soccer fan in the U.S., but it's an individual decision. I actually wrote a blog post about a yeah, two years ago now. It was when uh, the World Cup was going on. And I wrote the blog post saying that if the U.S. doesn't win the World Cup by 2026, it's my fault. Now, is it really my fault? No, truly, it's not 100% my fault. But everybody who is a soccer fan who wants the game to take off in this country needs to do their part in order to make that happen. And if we are all doing our part to make that happen, it's much more likely to happen. The only reason why we're not a soccer nation is because not enough people want for that to happen on the grand scale. It's going to happen. It's just the, you know, going back to the football metaphor of manifest destiny, it even works for, you know, things like that, where when the U.S. puts it to its mind that it wants to be the best at anything, it eventually figures it out. So very true. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if we just took our best, best athletes from all the sports that we already had and put them in soccer, I think we'd uh, put up a pretty darn good, pretty darn good squad. Um, yeah. And I think we could do some damage there. We I mean, just think about it. LeBron, I think he could fit somewhere on a soccer field, right? I don't know exactly where he would be able to fit. He, he would confident. He would have a totally different body uh, composition Absolutely. if he was, if he was training his entire life in order to be a soccer player, you know, and that's just, that's just the way that it would be. I do think his athleticism could be utilized in some way, shape or form, but it would be interesting. I would definitely love to see that. And so, you know, so we spoke about you writing books. You have another one um, as well. So we spoke about the first, you have a second one coming out. You created a documentary. Uh, I said before you're a speaker, you write blog posts. Where did this content creation side of you come out? And I guess like when, when did you start to tap into that and realize it was something not only could you, you utilize, but you actually had a lot of fun doing um, it, it all springs back to that original book, which actually the first mm -hmm. two books are out. I'm working on a third okay. actually. Oh, I apologize. Um, no, that's all right. Quite all right. Um, so the, uh, the first book, uh, came out and, um, after I got done writing it and it was this, you know, real thing that I was, I, I had up online, uh, I decided I was going to keep saying things. I was actually at the um, National Soccer Coaches Convention in Philadelphia um, that winter, and I ran to the Rocky Steps, as I always do. Whenever I'm in Philadelphia, no matter how far away my hotel is, I always run to the Rocky Steps. That's a, you know, just a childhood thing for me. I, I watched Rocky so many times, so I always would run to the Rocky Steps, and, you know, I was like, oh, I could write something about that, and I just on, on that trip, I, I actually signed up for a, uh, WordPress account and made my blog and, you know, I've been writing on, on my uh, blog ever since. So, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, I guess a little bit of the teacher in me mm -hmm. in the idea that there's no point in me having knowledge and not sharing it because, you know, if you break me down to my core, as a person, who am I? I'm here on this planet to help people. And, you know, there's all kinds of different ways to help. And, you know, if somebody stumbles onto my blog or stumbles onto my, one of my books, that's, that's great. Uh, you know, the, the benefit for me is not always seeing the, res the results. It's just that the results happen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I, and I'm a hundred percent agree. You know, we're, we're all here to help somebody in some way, shape or form, you know, hopefully you can do that in more ways than one. And I think again, being a coach, being a teacher, 
being a leader of, of young men specifically, I think is very important. And I know you also coached, you know, semi-pro a little bit. So that's like a whole nother area. I know you coached a little bit in college as well. What is it like at these different levels, you know, dealing with, you know, 17 and 18 year olds versus dealing with 21, 22 year olds versus, you know, just out of college, making a small amount of money. It's called semi-pro for a reason. How, how have you been able to connect with different young men along the way in a way that makes sense to them? Um, you know, the thing about coaching at the different levels is, um, you know, what are, what are the needs of that particular person? Uh, you know, when you get into the lower levels of, you know, youth and everything like that, at that point, your major job is to try to match and or exceed their excitement level for what's going on because, you know, I've chosen to make coaching one of my professions. Um, I want them to see what it is that I love about this game. And that's what I've got to put onto display. Um, as you move into the high school, uh, ranks for the most part, that is, you know, obviously when I'm getting beyond the, uh, the techniques, like, you know, mm -hmm. giving them the techniques to, to be able to be successful, but also high school boys in, in, <laughs> in particular are relatively easy creatures to figure out. It's, you know, give them an emotional, char emotionally charged message that will point and then point them in a direction and let them go. And that's a pretty easy thing to do mm -hmm. with a high school uh, person because of the fact that at that age, you know, they're still developing, um, you know, their prefrontal cortex and stuff like that. You don't actually, your brain doesn't f finish uh, developing until you're 25. And, you know, so there's a lot of these emotional um, triggers that you can play on a, uh, on a high school age kid to get them to get more out of themselves than they know is in there. And that's one of the things that, you know, it's, it's kind of uh, pervasive throughout all ages, but to a certain extent, people have no idea what they're capable of. So if you can put them in a direction and rev them up to the point where they believe that they can do whatever it is that you t have told them that they can do, and then you show them that next level, that's where, you know, that's where you can see real results. And then mm -hmm. at the upper levels in the, you know, in the college and, you know, the little bit of semi-pro that uh, I've dealt with, it's, it's less and less about, uh, you know, skill development tactics and everything like that. It, that's more about just making sure that the blade is sharp. Uh, you know, when I was, uh, coaching my, my last, uh, stint in the, uh, male game at the college level, you know, we went undefeated for an entire season until the last game. Mm -hmm. And the thing was, it was, my job was basically, the, the head coach was a really good tactician. The assistant coach was really good at running practices. My job was emotional management. I was the guy who at the beginning of, of the uh, pregame talk, we would have, you know, here are the tactics, here's this. And that was my small piece. It was, you know, you've got the I, I always break it down into um, the three parts of any game is if you're going to win a soccer game or a, you know, a basketball game, I don't think it works as much for baseball because it's just a different sport, but mm -hmm. you got the mental, the physical and the emotional, and you've got to win two out of the three games in order to win the game overall. And 
if you've got your tactics right and you've got your you know physical training right, you've got a better chance. But that emotional component is often the wild card that people have a tendency not to a understand and b have control over Mm -hmm. because you know it's one thing to have a gas pedal in a car and be able to rev it up to 100 miles per hour but if you don't have a steering wheel to go along with that gas pedal you're going to end up in a real bad spot Mm -hmm. so ultimately my job was you know getting them directed into a particular way and also teaching them how to manage that force that they have behind it because it's one thing to have somebody so psyched up that they can do anything but then being willing to to, or being able to taper that off when Mm -hmm. it's sensible being the one who's able to walk away from that situation that is you know your conscious mind knows this is going to get me in trouble but if you're so revved that you can't do anything but uh you know keep you can't keep control of yourself then you're going to run into all kinds of problems so absolutely you know that that was more of my role in the uh, college in the semi-pro uh type of thing it was mm-hmm. it was looking at that aspect of the game that's really interesting you know especially considering you know as as you said I, I think that's a great um great analogy you know there's three different sides of the game and i think it works in baseball i think it works in football it's just maybe those those scales might not be even right in baseball it's probably a little bit more mental in football you know maybe it's a little bit more physical in certain aspects maybe that's basketball i don't know but i think you know in all three all all you know sports i can think of off the top of my head at least it seems like those three things all play a major part in some way shape or form which i think is really interesting and so you know, you were talking about the mental and the emotional aspects. And I know, you know, when we spoke last week, if I'm not mistaken, you were telling me that the speaker side of you came from those emotional halftime speeches and, you know, giving them and and getting people to understand what they need to do and, and getting them revved up, but hopefully giving them enough kind of constraints or bumpers, let's call it, so that they stay in their lane. How did you then transition those halftime speeches to the classroom and then transition both of those to becoming a speaker, to allow just more people to hear your message, take it in and understand what they need to do in their life. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the thing is, is having been a sports person and also been a teacher for many years now, you know, the halftime speeches are an easy place to, show that, um, that amount of emotion because it's, it's the absolute right spot to do it. Um, when you go into the classroom and you try and give that same exact rousing speech of, you know, you guys can go out there and do that. You know, if you think of the general high school classroom, Mm -hmm. it it really doesn't fit. So every, every once in a while, I would be able to sneak in these types of messages without going to the umpteenth degree of emotion. It was more of like um, my one class in uh, Belvedere High used to uh, refer to me as the uh, motivational ninja. It was, you know, I would be I would be talking about something and then all of a sudden it was like this, you know, circuitous route of coming around and, and saying something that was motivational without mm-hmm. it, like them realizing that I was getting there. Um, so then once I, once I had done enough of that, where, you know, I was able to sneak in the, uh, the message in that, uh, in that classroom environment, I started to look at it and like, well, I really like this idea. I really like the, uh, the concept of, 
sneaking in um, positive messages to kids who need to hear them in a environment where they weren't really expecting to hear something. And so I started doing a little bit of, you know, the idea of, all right, well, you know, going out and speaking to kids uh, in, you know, Mm -hmm. assemblies and things like that was, was something that, you know, I thought, well, I've got the emotional side so I can get a crowd up. And then I've also got the, you know, the content side. I can, I can come up with the ideas that need to be uh, put out there. And I was like, all right, well, I, I think I can make this work. And so uh, I, I've done, you know, a couple dozen uh, presentations mm-hmm. at this point. You know, it's, it's something that I enjoy doing. I like you know, I know that a lot of people view public speaking as like, you know, worse than death and everything, but I actually enjoy it. I like that concept of getting up in front of uh, other people and having them, you know, listen to what it is that I have to say, because the one thing that I have over those kids is, you know, usually someplace around 30 years more experience. And I would have loved and, you know, uh, really enjoyed the idea of somebody coming to me and saying, hey, here are these 15 potholes that you're going to Mm -hmm. run into at some point, try and avoid them as best as you possibly can. Now, some of those potholes, you just have to go into for yourself. I mean, you have to learn how to deal with a broken heart yourself because that's just part Mm -hmm. of growing up. But, you know, some of the things you don't need to go into that pothole because I already went there. It's not a good place and you can really avoid it by doing this, this, and this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I mean, I love that. I mean, that, that is a very important piece of what I try and learn too. And I've heard, uh, you know, a good friend of mine, David Meltzer calls it the dummy tax. If you've seen someone do something and they've screwed up at it and now they know what to do, you don't have to pay that tax. You could just ask them what not to do. And you just then, as you said, try and avoid it as much as possible. Obviously things like broken hearts will come up for just about everybody on planet earth, but it's just one of those things where if you can avoid some of these, you know, I don't want to say rudimentary, but natural occurrences, you can avoid them just kind of helps project you even further and you don't have to deal with it. Uh, To the public speaking point, I hated public speaking and then I started to do it more and now I love it. That's why we've been, I go live all the time now and I'm in front of people constantly and it's a, it's a blast, you know? And and that's why I also, you know, as you were saying, that's why I love having the show. I don't get to share that much wisdom because I don't know that much. I get to have people like you on who have all that wisdom. And then hopefully they can say, Hey Mike, great job on that interview with Pete. Mm -hmm. He had some great points to make and hopefully a little bit of that love gets showered on me at some point, but uh, I love it. And also the last point, I cannot really blame too many high school students like 740, 745 in the morning, a rousing speech coming from Professor Yurik. Sorry, man. I probably wouldn't have gotten up for that too much either. I can't really blame them all that much. Can't, you cannot blame them. Uh, you know, the uh, probably it was one of the coolest things ever. I had these uh, twin boys, uh, Pat and Logan Farley, um, just because of the fact that my my schedule changed over the years. I, I started out teaching in middle school in Belvedere and then I progressively moved upward. Um, I taught both of them for about six years and it was hilarious because Logan was a huge actor and Pat got into acting a little bit more. And, uh, they one day got up in front of class and did like not a roast, but kind of like a, they were tag teaming, like acting like me for uh-huh. like about five seconds here. One of them would be me. And then the other one would be me. And it was just this beautiful, like, you know, thing that a teacher doesn't mm-hmm. always get the appreciation. Like you said earlier is teachers don't always get the appreciation. I felt the love of, mm-hmm. you know, even though they're kind of like, you know, 
little bit making fun at the same time. It was really just great to see, you know, that I was, I was making a mm-hmm. difference on, on one level or another. Yeah, exactly. And they remembered all of it too, right? So clearly it sunk into their head to the point where they were, they had it ingrained in there in some way, shape or form. And maybe they don't use it until a couple of years down the road after they start, start, stop laughing at you a bit. But of course, as you said, it was, it seems like it was, you know, it's fun poking, you know, we're oh, all yeah. having a good time. Everyone's having fun. No doubt so about it. one, um, the, the, you know, the one topic, obviously, you know, the last topic, essentially, I want to cover is, you know, what you're currently doing at Virginia Episcopal School. And one thing that I think is very important in this kind of just not sums up, but really connects to the entire conversation we've been having is, you know, what you're doing there and the reasons behind it. You know, obviously, you moved, you were up here in New Jersey, 100 Central, Belvedere, you moved down to Virginia. You said you really like the school because it, it's a boarding school, if I'm not mistaken. And it looks at the student as a person, not really as a student. And again, kind of connecting the point of you've always liked to look at soccer as a, you know, an analogy for life. And you can help these people through soccer, you know, their lives through soccer. And now you're at a school that does it. That's it's the overarching idea of the school is to help people in their entire lives, not just academics, not just sports. So tell me a little bit about what you're doing at Virginia Episcopal and how, you know, this whole connection between soccer and life has really kind of, again, brought you back to this school. Uh, yeah, I uh, taught here It's almost 12 years ago now. Uh, both of my kids were born while I was teaching here. And um, always uh, when I was here before, I had this affinity for the place. Uh, I, I really love this school. Um, exactly for that reason, our um, moniker is toward the upward stature or toward full stature. And so uh, the idea of becoming your best self is the underlying principle behind the school. Um, And it just so happens that in, in addition to that being, you know, the focus of the school, they also focus on, you know, the academics, athletics, and also the dorm life is part of things because it is a boarding school um, that who you are as a person, it becomes almost as important as your academic success and everything. Mm -hmm. So, that whole entire concept is 100% in line with who I am as a person. And it just so happened that um, I was on a recruiting trip for uh, the college that I was working for at the time. And I was going down to Raleigh, North Carolina, and I decided I'm going to stop off and see a couple of my old friends from VES. And, you know, I stopped off and uh, they're like, oh yeah, our uh, soccer coach is leaving. Oh yeah, we might have a Spanish position open. So it just seemed like the universe was trying to tell me something. And, um, you know, I'm excited to be back here because of that work that I get to do. Um, You know, I got... (laughs) I got an Instagram um, direct message about seven or eight months ago from one of my former players from here. And it was, you know, just all of this stuff about, you know, the influence that I was able to have on him. And now he's almost 30 years old. But, you know, the idea of all those little things that I did on at that, at that time, little conversations, you know, trusting in, in him to, you know, become a better person and do things uh, that he didn't think he could. And now he's, you know, an older, you know, almost 30 Mm -hmm. and looking back and he's like, you know, thank you so much. And that's the thing that teachers don't get very often. I know this past week was teacher appreciation week and, you know, send your teacher cupcakes or something along those lines, get him a Starbucks card, go right ahead. But ultimately, as I often say, 
I won't know whether I'm a success or a failure as a coach or a teacher until about five to 10 years later. Mm -hmm. That's when I really get to see the work that I've done. And, you know, uh, our common friend, Mike Matulo, uh, is one of those people that, you know, if, if you would have asked me, you know, when he was a senior in high school, Hey, you know, were you successful with Mike? I would have said that exact thing. It's, I'm not going to know for, for five to 10 years. And now I get to see, uh, you know, the person that he's become and, it's not all me. It's his parents. It's his, you know, other coaches and things like that. But I, I know I have a little bit of a stake to claim in there. And, you know, I really appreciate the fact that a lot of my former players and, you know, people that I've had influence on come back and say, yeah, you know, I didn't understand what you were saying right then, but I now get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's, you know, those are the types of moments that teachers, coaches, and that we really live for. And so, you know, mm-hmm. Uh, you always hope that those things are going to happen, that those changes are going to happen. And those kids that you, you know, see struggling are going to have a a positive outcome eventually. But, you know, it's, it's always a bit of a roll of the dice. You, you've, you've got to do the best that you possibly can and and hope that it all works out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and no, Mike is, he's becoming more and more successful every day. I respect the hell out of what he's doing, especially in the financial field. And uh, he's a good dude. And so clearly, you know, as you said, you don't really get to see all that. It's not an immediate effect. It's something, you know, you spend time with someone as you, I don't know if uh, this is the best way to put it, but you have to drill something into someone's head, especially a 16, 17, 18 year old for them to kind of carry that a little bit with them. And as you said, now being able to get those messages and it's not that you needed the validation, but how nice is it to know that, you know, maybe not everybody took everything you said to heart, but some people are saying like, you actually had an impact on me moving forward. That has to just be like one of the greatest feelings in the world as a teacher and as a coach. Oh yeah. It's spectacular. And you know, the, the analogy that a lot of people use is um, the idea of bamboo. It's bamboo. You have to water it for five years before you see anything, you know, you're sitting there watering, uh, you know, a, a brown spot on the ground that, you know, there's roots taking hold, but you know, mm-hmm. once it starts to peek through, that's it, it rockets off. And, you know, for me, uh, I absolutely love that, that capability to every mm-hmm. once in a while have a kid come back. You know, I call them kids, these kids, yeah. they're, they're, they're in their, their late twenties and early thirties and stuff. So, you know, I, I, I call them kids, but mm. they're a little bit older now. Don't worry. Mike's still a kid in my eyes too. I think he's <laughs> only like half a year younger than me, but he's, he's a good dude. We love him a lot. Jeremy as well. Um, so they're, they're, they're good friends of mine. And so, so we spoke about um, quickly, we spoke about one of your books. So you have two, one other that is out and another that is being written. So first off, what are the names to all your books? Let's get those out. There. Okay. So the first book, the one that I wrote for that summer team is called fill your boots. And basically the concept was, you know, to look at the shoe that you wear when you're uh, when you're playing. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning of the book, I kind of like talk about how, you know, let's just say that you're a, a five-year-old kid, your, your shoes are very small. And if you were to be able to see all of the shoes that you're going to fill throughout your life, it would be real easy to, at the beginning, look at where you're going to be up being a size, like, you know, whatever it is two and, eventually see that you're going to be a size 11, it would be tough to see that progress as a little kid, but eventually you're going to get to that spot. And it's just how well you fill out your shoes. Can you reach your actual limits as opposed to just accepting who you are right now, you know, pushing Mm -hmm. that, pushing that envelope. So that was the first book. 
The second book is Soccer Life Balance. And basically that's the kind of moniker that I've taken over for a lot of different things. Um, and the concept there was taking soccer uh, concepts and, and relating them to life. So for example, um, one of the first few chapters is inflate the ball. Well, you know that if you're playing with a flat ball, you're not going to get very far. But, you know, how does that relate to life? Well, breathing practice. Now, most people are like, well, I'm really good at practicing breathing. You know, I, I don't need any extra practice. Mm -hmm. But the whole entire thing is, is it's one of those things that we overlook. You know, if you ask somebody, and I, I, I do this from time to time, I'll do it with classes, is, you know, what's the most important thing you're going to do today? And most people say, I got to do my homework. I got to do this. I got to do that. Very few are going to say breathe, but it's the one thing that if you stop doing it for 10 minutes, you're dead. So recognizing the fact that that is an important thing. And not only is it an important thing, it's also a link to your subconscious and your uh, nervous system. So, you know, you've got the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. So the overlap of those two things, the fight or flight response, and also the rest and digest. And it's all linked to breathing that you can get from one to the other. So, you know, we were talking earlier about, you know, being able to go from that hundred mile per hour to, I need to stop myself because I'm about to do something that's in, not in my best interest. How do you do that? Well, you've got this adrenaline going, you need to be able to let that go. How do you do that through breathing exercises and able to enabling you to let go of that fight or flight uh, response and go to a more calm and centered state and do it at will rather than ha being at the effect of what's happening. Most of our world, unfortunately, at this moment is people reacting to what's happening outside of themselves mm -hmm. rather than reacting the way that they want. You know, uh, I, I suggest a lot of things in the book, um, you know, breathing practice being one of them, um, hydration being another, there's all kinds of things. But, you know, one of the big things that I talk about is, is you know, the idea of don't use your uh, technology for the first half hour of the day. Why? Well, because of the fact that you're always going to be in reaction then. If you can spend the first half hour of your day figuring out what it is that you want to get out of the day, not what, you know, your friends want for you, not what your teachers want, not what your parents want, not what anybody else wants for you, but what do you want for that day? You're going to have a much clearer vision for what is important to you. So that, therefore you can act with that in mind, as opposed to mm -hmm. first thing you do, pick up your phone, Hey, what does uh, Instagram want, you know, want mm -hmm. to show me as important, you know, because we're the customer, you know, and we're also the product. Instagram is only a, a, a thing because of the fact that you keep on posting on it and you keep on looking at it. Why don't you just stop for a second and figure out who it is that you want to be today and then can you use that as a resource possibly? So um, Soccer Life Balance is the second book and, uh, you know, it's it's exactly that. It goes mm -hmm. through a whole bunch of different uh, uh, concepts. And then the newest book is the one that it actually is the first one, but it's the third one. Mm. But, little, uh, uh, little Quinter, here, you know, the, maybe some Star Wars going on here. Exactly. So the whole entire thing is, is I've had the I've had this book in mind for well over 10 years. Uh, the title of it. Um, and, and everything. So my last name, as you uh, ran into at the beginning of the uh, 
interview is a little tough to say if you look at it. It's spelled H-U-R-Y-K, but it said Uric. Well, my uncle, when he was in the military, because of the fact that our last name is difficult to say, um, they would refer to him as Urock. Okay. U R O K. Now, I just did it for mm-hmm. you and I also uh, said it. Now, the book is going to eventually, and I got to find the right publisher that'll do it this way, hopefully. The idea is the first half of the book is exactly that spelled out you are okay it's a it's a guide hopefully for teenagers to get that message across you are okay and unfortunately that's a message that we need to send all too often to our teenagers right now is you're okay who you are is okay it doesn't matter what you know instagram snapchat your friends all of these people are trying to tell you you are not okay you are okay. So developing some of those skills that you need in order to feel all right about who mm. you are at the beginning. The second half of the book, and my plan is to you know, have it be front cover, you are okay, and then flip the book over and it'll be upside down to read in the opposite direction. Mm. But uh, that one is you rock. And the idea is that second half of the book is, well, now that you feel comfortable with you, who you are, How can you take that to the next level? How can you bring yourself to the umpteenth degree and get the absolute most out of yourself that you possibly can? Um, Just finished reading an absolutely awesome book uh, by David Goggins, um, Mm -hmm. Can't Hurt Me. If you have not read it, it's life altering if you are if you are willing to allow it to be. I listened to the audiobook, which I feel like is probably even better than the uh, printed version because there's like commentary in there with him. And it's just amazing to hear that guy's story and not, you know, I don't know how anybody unless, you know, I just have a weird uh, mm-hmm. sense of sense of, uh, you know, what's important in this world. But listening to that guy's story and being like, Yes, I need to get more out of myself even. You know, I'm doing all right for myself, but even I could I could push the limits a little bit farther. But I love the concept of the third one. I think that's important. And the second one of course too, I think, you know, it's it's a great just life lessons are always important and they're going to get to people in different ways and if you can get to soccer fans in that way and you can help again even just help one of them uh some way shape or form i think that's great but again the the concept of the third one i think is pretty cool and obviously it comes close from the heart you have been a high school teacher for a long time a a leader of uh young men and women in the school and in sports and i think it's a really great way to again you know connect with family lineage it doesn't hurt as well to really just help people and i think you know that's again you know what your life's mission it seems like it is and and a lot of people along the way yeah, it's 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 one of those things that uh, is difficult for me um, because of the fact that in the past I'm I'm gonna ballpark it probably about seven or eight years I've lost at least eight students that mm-hmm. or students mm-hmm. or players mm-hmm. through you know uh, non necessary death uh, whether it be alcohol and drug related um, you know suicide. Uh, accidents that could have been avoided and everything. And it's just, it's so difficult for me to see young people pass away before their time, usually through avoidable, you know, through avoidable Mm -hmm. situations. And it, a lot of it comes down to this is, you know, they did not feel worthy of, 
you know, love and care and everything like that. So either A, they took their own life because, you know, a girlfriend broke up with them or something like that, or B, they, they felt like they were worthless. And so therefore it's, they run into problems with alcohol, drugs, or, or a combination of the two, or it's, you know, I, I need to get more excitement out of life because of the fact that, you know, my life doesn't seem like it's as exciting as the person who I see on Instagram and YouTube and everything. So I need to push the limits with my motorcycle or this or that. And it's, you know, uh, that I I just don't want to lose any more kids. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and and it has nothing to do with me. It's not, it's not the fact that they have a relationship to me that makes it important. It, it could be anywhere. I, that's why I put things out into the internet, and, uh, in the, in the books and everything like that, you know, I, I tend to, that's, that's probably my weakest point on, uh, this whole entire thing is I'm not good at self-promotion. Like I, I fly under the radar, not, not because of the fact that I don't think my message is important. I think that my messages are extremely important. I, I want to have an impact, but I have this real problem with putting myself out there because I feel salesy and I don't want to feel salesy. I I care about kids. I care about um, where people are going and whether or not they're going to be able to live their lives to the fullest. And that's my mission. I do, uh, you know, the selling of books is a nice thing. Hey, it's a, it makes you feel a little bit good, but I, that's one part that I've always had a lot of trouble with is that idea of selling myself mm-hmm. uh, to people, you know, cause I, I'll, I, that's why I like the blog as much as I do because of the fact that it's free, you know, to anybody, anybody can pick it up and, and get something out of it. Um, you know, well, let, let me just say, do it more often because you were awesome today. We've been doing this for an hour. You've been on, uh, we're on LinkedIn, we're on YouTube right now. That's going to live there forever. The podcast is going to come out in a couple of weeks so people can enjoy the audio version of this as well. So if, if there's one thing I can leave you with, <laughs> get on more of this stuff because you weren't sales. You were fantastic. You share an incredible message. As you said, it's unfortunate, you know, as you said, with, with young kids and, and, you know, kind of how the internet works and how their brain works and how all of these things have to happen. But it, you know, again, you know, you're doing a great thing and we appreciate you for that. Again, all the books will be in the show notes. So I can promise you, you got at least one sale right here. Hopefully a couple other people check them out. We'll get the blog in there as well. Any of your social medias, I think just keep doing what you're doing, man. Cause as you've already found out, you know, with people like Mike with, you know, some of your other students, you are making an impact. And, you know, the more you can do that, the more people you can touch, the better all of our lives will end up being. So sincerely appreciate what you do, Pete. So I have Peter Urich, author, speaker, coach, all around great guy. Sincerely, sincerely appreciate your time today, man. Yep. No, thank you for having me, Mike. Thank you so much for listening to this episode with Peter. As I said, all around great dude, just trying to inspire, trying to motivate, trying to make people better. And we freaking appreciate him for that. So please make sure to go buy his book. Please go make sure to check out his website. Go check out his socials. Everything is in the social notes in the show notes there we go and please also make sure to give us a five-star review wherever you're listening preferably if it's on apple itunes and spotify so thank you all so much for your time it's the only thing we don't get more of and i appreciate some of yours so i hope you make it a wonderful day yes.